Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. We've got a great interview for you today. We're going to be talking with Marion Schneider. She's the president of Verified Voting, and we are going to talk about protecting our elections here in the United States. Uh, it really applies everywhere, but of course, we're focused on the U.S. Uh, uh, on this show, talking to Marion. And it's so important and it's so timely. And we talked with Barbara Simons last year, uh, also from Verified Voting, uh, but we've got some updates for you on things that have improved since then and things that have changed since then, some not all for the better. Uh, and we're going to talk about how it's how we really go about protecting our elections and making sure that we can find out if someone has been trying to tamper with the voting. So without further ado, let's talk to Marion Schneider. All right. As promised, we are talking with Marion Schneider. She is the president of Verified Voting and an elections lawyer who formerly oversaw Pennsylvania elections under Governor Tom Wolf. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, very glad you came to talk to us. Uh, this is something that I've, I've always thought is extremely important. Of course, I spoke to uh, last July with Barbara Simons uh, about protecting our, our elections and generally improving our election process. And frankly, I'll probably ask you some of the same questions. But there have been changes since then and some, I think some important ones. Um, but I'll say again that what I probably said then is, you know, if you look at all the problems we have today in our American political system, I have to think that if you did a root cause analysis, uh, they'd have to point to our election system. I mean, there's nothing more basic in a democracy, right? But, you know, campaign finance, gerrymandering, and of course, our subject today, which is vulnerable voting systems. So um, if you would, uh, for the benefit of the audience, uh, kind of recap a little bit of, of, of where we are now, where how, how we got in this state. You know, maybe 2000 was obviously the debacle that everybody thinks about when they think of voting problems, but um, kind of catch us up a little bit of, uh, of, of what's been going on and how we got where we are. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think this started, the current state of affairs started with the 2000 presidential election, and then even the um, 2002 midterm election was somewhat of a debacle as well. And the, the problem there was, um, you know, we do have a patchwork of regulation over elections in our country. And uh, the the thinking was, well, we've been using this very old technology, lever machines that you can't verify. And, and uh, we're using this, you know, mid-century, mid-20th century technology, which are punch cards that have a lot of ambiguity with them. I mean, did it, did it get punched? Didn't it get punched? Hanging and chads. So, right, exactly. So... <laughs> So the thinking I, at the time was, let's we need something modern. We can do so many things with computers. We need to move to electronic voting. And so, um, what I what happened was in a typical fashion, <laughs> you know, Congress appropriated a large amount of money to be spent by the states to replace their voting systems, but they didn't promulgate the standards and the the testing protocols. Uh, quickly enough. And so there was a rush to meet a deadline, a congressionally imposed deadline. Mm -hmm. And so what we got are all these systems onto the market really quickly that people didn't really think through the voting process, which is a different transaction than any transaction we do with computer. Mm. Because number the biggest difference is it's anonymous. We don't want to trace back who ha, people's votes to, to the actual person, because that leads to coercion, mm -hmm. fraud, corruption. Um, so that takes it entirely out of the realm of buying something from Amazon or <laughs> um, going to, you know, we have these convenience stores uh, going there and using a touchscreen to purchase a sandwich. It's not the same because you you have the the your choices and you are not separated in the process. Right. So what happened, so um, right now, because there was a huge influx of money at one time, 
most of the voting systems are at the same age. And so there are a lot of them are more than 12 years old. Some are 14, 15, 16 years old and need to be replaced all at the same time. And some of them are uh, unverifiable, what we call paperless machines. They're all computers. We use, I don't, I'm, there may be very small number of jurisdictions who do hand counted paper ballots. It's very small. Everybody else uses either a computer that directly records the voters' choices onto computer memory, and we call those direct recording electronic or DRE, or they use a, um, they mark a ballot by hand and they insert the ballot in a, a scanner, which is also a computer and that scans the marks and tabulates them. So those are the two basic kinds of voting systems in use. There's different varieties of the DRE. Some are touchscreen, some are push buttons, some use, you know, there's a different kind of interfaces. But the, the main problem with DREs is that there's no record of your choices. Once you hit that vote button, that's it. It's written. If something interferes with the way that your choices are written to that computer memory, you have no way of knowing and you have no way of correcting it. So what the main design flaw there is there's no way to recover in the event of a disaster, whether that disaster is a, a plain old programming error, human error, or just a bug in the software or intentional interference. Gotcha. So is that, does that... Yeah, that's that gets us to where we are. Yeah. So, what percentage? And I, I know you've got a wonderful tool on the verified voting mm -hmm. site that where you can actually look at this and see what's going on with your state. Uh, where we stand now, I know there was a big change with Virginia. Um, mm -hmm. How many states are using these, and is it within a state? Is it mixed as well? Yes, actually, that's a really good question. And and uh, yeah, our map does show everything. I can tick off, there are five states that 100% of the voters use um, DREs, and that's Delaware, New Jersey, Georgia, South Carolina, and Louisiana. And then there's another eight states that I can't tick off so easily that a significant hmm. percentage use DREs as the primary method. And Pennsylvania, my home state, is one, the 83% of voters. Tennessee is like in the 90s. Texas has a significant percentage of its voters that use DREs. Uh, Kentucky is another one that's mixed. And then what you have is um, the one major um, problem that we we need to solve better is the accessible devices for voters with disabilities. Mm. So you, in a lot of states, you'll have um, able voters using a voter mark paper ballot that's scanned, and then they'll have some other kind of device for voters with disabilities. And that may or may not have a paper record. Mm. So, um, so that's, so it is a mixed bag. Um, but I do. I've heard a statistic. Um, we're you know we're trying. We're looking into that. But um, 42 states are using the equipment that were purchased in 2006 um, or earlier. So wow. that's a that's a lot of the country that's using older equipment. Now, I, I, I know actually, like like you, I try to keep this show nonpartisan. I try. I, mm -hmm. I, I know that you you know that we're concerned. Personally, I believe I speak for you guys as well, that you seem to be concerned with democracy more than any particular uh, cause or, you know, certainly a political cause. But nevertheless, I want to ask the question, uh, when you look at the machines that are DREs that, that don't have a paper trail or that – which something you just brought up what I didn't even consider, that, we, that actually different classes of voter might have different machines, mm -hmm. um, how does that – 
How does that break down in terms of swing states and demographics? <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. I don't think it, I've never even thought about it as in a partisan way at all. Um, but I can tell you, you know, so there's a mixed bag in those five states where 100% of voters vote on DREs. It's it's pretty much a mixed bag, right? Because you know you've got New Jersey and you've got Georgia and so, mm. you know, yeah. and you've got Delaware and you have South Carolina. I mean, so that's kind of a mixed bag. Mm. Um, same with you know you Pennsylvania is a swing state. Um, so you know I think that the states that are um, you know mixed or have more of a large percentage of voters without DREs, I think are really some of them, like Florida, not so much Florida, but Texas, Pennsylvania, certainly those are big states. I think that what we need to focus on, that 70% of the country has some kind of a paper record that we could go back to and we could recover from an event. But what is um, important to know is that the states that are mixed or that they're Within a state, it's more impactful because you've got states with 100% of voters where you can't recover. You've got states with like 83% of the voters you can't recover. So that's, it seems to me that within the states, it's more impactful. But when you look at the country as a whole, 70% have some kind of a paper record. So we are actually trying to do a study on uh, a demographic study on how this plays out. So stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Well, and one of the reasons I ask, and it's, and again, it's not to, you know, stir up the hornet's nest, because I know that this can be quickly turned into a partisan thing. But, you know, at 17 of our intelligence agencies all agree that the Russians did some level of meddling. And, and you know, and some people say, well, they only looked at a few different things. But as we well know, in this country, just looking at the last, oh gosh, I mean, the last four or five elections, um, many of the last elections have come down to very, very few votes separating the winner and the loser. And it you know, if if you were to target areas that had these machines where you couldn't, you could maybe make a change without leaving a trace. That could make have a huge impact. So, um, I think that's yeah. I, I don't disagree with that statement um, at all. But I think that it doesn't. I think it's irrelevant uh, whether mm. it happened or not. I think it's irrelevant. I think what matters is that they were out there, and it was it's demonstrated that they were out there, and that they used resources to interfere with our election, and they used resources that were directly targeting our computer systems. That's all you need to know. Yeah, <laughs> you need to absolutely. know nothing further um, to understand that this is a national security issue, and we need to shore up our protections, and we need to be able to recover from an event. That's that's all you need to know, I think. Agreed. I, and I would completely agree. All right. So let's back away from that cliff just a little bit. And let's, let's, let's tell me a little bit about where verified voting came from. Where did you guys come into existence? And what kind of stuff have you been – what have you accomplished to date? Well, so verified voting was started in uh, early 2000s by actually David Dill, who's a professor of computer science at uh, Stanford University. And they it got started because computer scientists saw – earlier than most people, what kind of vulnerabilities could be presented by using computer technology, uh, you know, nationwide for our votes. You know, if you remember the Lever voting machines, those are mechanical. So you would need to have access to each individual machine in order to change the outcome of election. With computer computerized voting, especially ones that were rushed to market and maybe were not as engineered as well as they should have been, you don't need to have access to every single machine. And um, so um, that our board 
our board and our advisory board are mostly computer scientists, mathematicians, statisticians, and former election officials. And what I think that we've accomplished so far is we are the go-to source for resources about voting technology and voting equipment. And we've uh, you know, our advocacy has resulted in movement away from unverifiable systems to more verifiable systems with paper records. You know, we advocate for voter mark paper ballots, and we've gotten we've gotten some st- states to change. And but the second piece of this, it, it's not just it's not enough that you have the paper ballots; you have to look at them in a meaningful way. Mm. So our board and our advisory board members have developed a high qu- level quality assurance tool called risk limiting audits, which uses statistical methods to, uh, to confirm the election result. And it's, it's, so it's a way to do it using the le- you know, counting the least number of ballots as possible. And so doing it in a very, very efficient way. So I feel like verified voting has had uh, and a huge impact on on the dialogue surrounding election technology. And um, we're still, I think we're starting to really feel that impact now that there's been heightened awareness and heightened attention to the issue after the 2016 election. And you brought up a couple, couple great points that I'd love to dig into there. So uh, first of all, when you talk about all the various voting systems that are across the country, why is it that we don't have, uh, if not a national standard, at least national guidelines. And obviously, when the when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, this was not an issue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they only had what they had. But, you know, obviously, with all the technology we have today, is there obviously there are states rights, states rights issues here and things like that, uh, which I'm sure you could talk to. But surely we could come together to decide that there should be some sort of a national standard on these uh, on minimum voting standards for these systems and the processes around them. And now I do know that some people say that the hodgepodge is actually a feature, not a bug, right? Because it means it's harder to hack because there's all this heterogeneous stuff out there, but okay, I'll shut up now. You can speak. <laughs> well, no, that's a, no. So you, you've raised a bunch, uh, you've raised several points. And um, the first is that there actually is a national standard for voting for, for voting equipment that is administered by the Election Assistance Commission, and but it's vol- it's so-called voluntary. So, under the Help America Vote Act, which was passed in 2002, they created the Election Assistance Commission, and part of their duties is to certify voting equipment for use in the states. And but the standard is called the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines, and. And um, as I said before, the standards haven't really caught up with technology. Now, there's, we're coming towards the close of a two-year project. The EAC has been working on updating those standards, and they've tried to engage stakeholders. We've been involved, uh, verified voting members and other activists have been involved in that process. But because it's voluntary, it doesn't apply in every state. So. Some states, some states require EAC certification before your, a, a system can be sold in that state. For example, Pennsylvania does. Some states also require their own testing. Also, Pennsylvania does. Some states don't like the EAC testing because they don't like the standards, so they have their own standards. And if the EAC and there was a period of time where the EAC didn't have a quorum, so the states were like, "Well, we're going to have to change our law so we can go forward because we can't wait for them." Um, so. There is an attempt, and the reason I think that we do not have a national standard that has some teeth is because of the pushback from states over federal um, 
involvement in elections based on the United States Constitution. And that's unfortunate because I feel like a national standard would be really helpful. I've always thought that if the EAC could do most of the testing that we could all rely on, then we would only have to test idiosyncratic law in the various states. Like Pennsylvania has some idiosyncratic <laughs> law. Let's just pet, let's just test those pieces. But they haven't their their security testing, for example, has not been robust. It hasn't been robust enough. And that so that's an issue. And as far as the diversity of devices being protective, yes and no, but think if you think about we only have one national election with the presidential. So that only protects maybe against the presidential, but because of the electoral college, hmm. not so protective because you do the calculation right. and you can, you know, it's so, and when you have a nation state adversary with unlimited resources, <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Right. Right. I mean, so, but, uh, not to make it sound like chicken little, but if <laughs> like we have Senate races, if you want to influence Senate races, then maybe you go to the States where there's a Senate race this year. Yeah. Uh, so as a software engineer, I, we do testing all the time. And uh, what? And obviously, one of the other core principles that we're, this country was founded on was checks and balances. So the other side of this coin, as far as I'm concerned, is is the testing that you spoke of. And, and well, then, then there's also the profit motive to me that I think should be removed from making certain things like prisons and voting machines. But why, why are we not forcing like Diebold and some of these uh, uh, private companies that are making these machines to open up their software to uh, force testing. I know, for example, that the DEF CON hacking village last year found all sorts of, of problems with whatever machines they could get their hands on. And it was hard for them to get their hands on those machines because these companies were actively trying to not get them into their hands. In fact, I think there was some recent legal stuff going on with eBay sellers who are trying to sell old machines legally on eBay. But these companies were sending cease and desist letters or something threatening legal action because they said it's you, you can't resell these it's illegal but as far as i know it's right. totally illegal so talk to us about <laughs> third-party vetting and, and and why is that something we cannot seem to get right well i if i think that there are several answers to this first of all election administration the is woefully underfunded and it's expensive to do that kind of testing that's but so that's number one that shouldn't really stand in the way of states doing the kind of testing that they should do. But some states require the voting system vendors to pay for the testing, others do not. Um, the real problem is what you what you highlighted, which is the proprietary software in these systems. Um, this, I think the states should have the bargaining power to get that software disclosed. They have not exercised that when they've been purchasing their equipment. Um, but if you had, if we, we did try to have a source code review, at least while I was at the Department of State. Um, but, you know, it is, it's, it's time-consuming and um, it, it, time-consuming and expensive. So I think that's one of the major obstacles. Not that it shouldn't be done, but that we have to figure out a way to do it, a better way to do it. And that brings me to my third point, which is the profit model it may not be the right model for voting system equipment. Um, because what I'm seeing as we try to go to, as we try to move states towards verifiable systems, we're seeing the biggest opposition coming from voting system vendors who want to sell a lot of machines mm -hmm. and that's problematic. And I've said, I, I know people who are on the sales force at many of the voting system companies because of my role at the department of state. And I've said to them, we got to work together on this, but 
I'm not seeing it in the field. So, hmm. um, that's, that's a, that is a problem, but, um, I think states should exercise their bargaining power and say, look, you want to sell a system in the state, then this is what you have to do. I think Michigan tried to do that, and and I think they did it in a pretty good way. Um, I know that New York and California have robust testing, although I'm a little concerned about the last round of testing that California did. But, um, uh, you know, I think that there are states, some states do a better job of it than others. I know Florida has, I'm looking at the map, Florida also has pretty robust testing of voting systems but you know testing beforehand gets you so far right and you know not only do they test the systems and make sure that they meet criteria and that they're generally secure and that they're they you know they they're they're going to do what they say they're going to do but right before the election they do what's called logic and accuracy testing and that is after the ballot's been programmed, they take the devices and either they test them all or they test a sample and they make sure that they're recording the votes correctly. Mm-hmm. That that gets you so far, but you, that's why you need to audit after the fact. Yes, and you have to have a human in the process. In fact, I was just listening to the radio um, right, right before this show where they were talking about facial recognition software and they were saying that there's there can be errors in the software there can be human errors so right now we need to use both and i was like that's exactly right so that's why you have the software counting the votes but then you have a human process after the fact to make sure that the software didn't screw up and that's what we're fighting in all of the states to get that human process to verify the votes and but so there's two, two things you need that you need to have the something to look at you need to have something to audit which is the paper record, and you need to have a process that the state law allows you to actually look at those, you know, with your eyes, you know, human inspection manual manually of the ballots that other humans have marked. That's how you, that's the only way to check the software. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's like so much in the security area where it's uh, defense in depth. You need more than one kind of defense, uh, for, you know, like two-factor authentication and uh, having these risk-loading audits and paper ballots to follow up on. Uh, in addition to the software itself being as you know as good as you can make it, humans are humans. They, there will be mistakes even if they're, even if they're not meant to do. Uh, so while software reviews are, are good, I wish we had more of them. I love the hacking village concept where we can turn these things over to the to the community. Right. And, uh, but yes, absolutely. So you, you, let's talk a little bit about those risk limiting audits. Uh, I know it's a deeply statistical mathematical <laughs> concept, but for our audience in layman's terms, w- what does it mean to have a risk limiting audit? How often do you do that? How does it generally work? How long does it take? Does it delay the election results? Uh, under what conditions is it triggered? What do we do if you find a problem? Okay. Lots <laughs> well, of questions. There were a lot of questions in there. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. Uh, so a risk limiting audit sets a predetermined risk limit. And what that means is that that's the smallest chance that an incorrect outcome would be certified. So what is that? So an incorrect outcome it means that that it's different than what a full manual count of the paper would reveal. So if you counted up all the ballots and this one one candidate won, and uh, an incorrect outcome means a different candidate would win. So say you have a risk-limiting audit that's 5%. So there's a 5% chance that you won't catch that any error and a 95% chance that you will catch it. So that's what that means. Now, the math's all been worked out by <laughs> very smart people, not me. Um, and uh, it just means that – so what that means is you just need a set of data points to plug into the algorithm to tell you how many ballots you need to sample for this process. And um, – 
the 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 data points are typical. It's like how many how many ballots were cast in the election, how many votes did each candidate get, and what's the margin of victory? You have those data points, you plug them into the algorithm, and it tells you how many ballots you need to sample. But you need to do it randomly, and so then you can you know do a random number generator and it'll tell it tells you which ballots to look at. Now there's two different ways you can do it. Um, you can look, you can pull the actual paper ballots and then compare them to a digital image. The new equipment all takes a picture of the ballots mm. as they're scanned in. And then you just, that's called a ballot comparison audit, or you can do a ballot polling off it audit, which is exactly like, you know, opinion polling before an election. You don't have to count every you don't have to mm. ask every voter how they're going to vote. You do a sample, and it works exactly the same way. So hopefully that's in enough layman's terms for your audience. Um, uh, and do we, so, do, do we trigger these every single time? Is it, is it something that every state well, just does as a matter of process, or does it only do it when certain triggers occur? And how long does it take? Well, actually, this is a new thing. The only state who's done these so far is Colorado, and they did conduct the first statewide risk-limiting audit in 2017. So kudos to Colorado. Uh, Rhode Island has a statute that was enacted, and they're in the process of implementing. Um, Colorado is a vote-by-mail state, so mm. that's a little different process. All the ballots are centrally located, um, although they do go to the county. So it's not that different than um, uh, states that have precinct um precinct-based voting because generally, well, it depends on the state, but so states that have, have smaller jurisdictions that conduct voting or do precinct voting, they're, they're going to may have to do it a different way, but those details are being worked out. Um, but the ideal is to make it part of the process, um, before certification. And I know that Colorado's, uh, process went this year, I think they did. They started on November fifteenth, and it took them like three days to do it. I think it was like may have gone from the fifteenth to the eighteenth. Um, so the ideal situation is after the you know after election day, but before certification, have this as part of the process. You know, there's a checklist. This is what you have to do to certify an election. This is part of it. So um, you know, I think that. They're, the details of implementation need to be worked out, but I, I don't think it's uh, insurmountable. Okay. So there's been, uh, as there always is, lots of bills floating around Congress to address these things as these issues kind of pop up and fade back mm -hmm. into the background. Uh, there's a couple that I wanted to uh, talk to you about specifically. One is the uh, the SAVE Act, the um, uh, Secure America's Voting Equipment Act, uh, and then there's uh -huh. the Secure Elections Act. And I think the Secure Elections Act Sounds a little bit more robust, but can tell me about what those are, what the status is, um, and are, do they have any chance of passing? Well, the secure, <laughs> the secure <laughs> elections act is a, was introduced in the Senate. It's bipartisan legislation that was introduced in December of 2017, and it essentially it does several things. Some of which is happening already because of the critical infrastructure designation, but it encourages information sharing at all levels of government. It makes it easier for uh, the state and local governments to get information from DHS. Um, but one of the um, major portions of it is of grant funding. So it it I think it allocates about three hundred and eighty million dollars that. Uh, grants to the states to shore up their cybersecurity practices, but also to replace old equipment. And it priori prioritizes states that have the more vulnerable equipment that we discussed. So um, 
the com- the actual companion bill that I that in the House is the Paper Act, which is slightly mm. different, but um, it provides pretty much the same thing. Both of them have a study commission that's going to establish recommendations, um, and then the grant money is tied to. Uh, it, could, it could be tied to several things. It could be tied to complying with the. Um, the recommendations or having a, you know, a penetration test done by Homeland security and then needing to rectify, you know, if, if there's some things they have to remediate, then they would get some money to do that. And then also replacing equipment. So, um, as far as the chances for passage, um, we're hopeful, uh, working in a coalition of other groups that are, um, advocating for its passage. I feel like, uh, there's not, as big a sense of urgency as I would like to see coming from Congress mm. on this mm. issue. And and I think it goes back to that anything that has to do with elections gets politicized. And yeah. I don't see this as a political issue. I see this as a national security issue. I see this as, are we going to hang together as a country and uh, as, you know, work to make our democracy as strong as possible? Is that what we're going to do? If that's, If so, then we need to take these steps. Well, and I think that, and I think this came up when I was talking with uh, Barbara Simons last year, is that it's not even so much, you know, looking at any individual election or or the partisan bickering that goes on uh, around it, but I mean, it undermines your confidence in your in your government and your in your way of life. I mean, that that's insidious. That's when you when you get to right. the point where you can look at your president and say, I don't think he was elected fairly, or my senator, or whoever the case may be. That you know, I think these people were. We're always talking about how the system is rigged, and the more we keep talking about how rigged the system is, and it, I don't know, it just seems to undermine so many things, and it's it's so fundamental to what we believe is, you know, in our, it is our country. It's just, it's awful. Well, I think, I think that narrative is really destructive. And I think that's one of what we're advocating is a response to that narrative to say, okay, you, you know, maybe something might happen. There's a risk that something was happened. We're going to take every step to make sure that risk is as close to zero as possible. But we have a process in place that we can detect if anything happens and we can recover from it so we can all be sure that our electoral outcomes are correct. And so I think that's why the work that we're doing is so important because it is a response to a very destructive narrative. Yeah. All right. So I've got to ask the question. So vote you know, vote tampering existed well before we had electronic voting, um, mm-hmm. uh, ballot stuffing and voter fraud to whatever degree, you know, there's many ways that can happen, but, um, destroying ballots. I mean, there's all, there's all, you know, even with paper ballots, there, there are issues. So what are the vulnerabilities? Even if we, even if we do all these things, are we still just vulnerable in different ways? Well, it, it there, I agree that, you know, and I know that, you know, we, history tells us of tampering with paper ballots. I always, like to say that most of the cases, you know, the case law on election tampering with paper ballots had had some element of an insider, what I, what I like to call a corrupt insider. Mm. So, and that um, because of the, of the nature of that, the conspiracy that you would need to change the outcome of an election with paper ballots is enormous compared to what you would need to do using software. And software can an election can be thrown with a very small conspiracy, even a conspiracy of one. So that's mm. that's one major difference. But I also want to point out something that we know how to deal with physical evidence. We know how to protect it. We do it every day in the criminal justice system with robust chain of custody procedures. So um, it's you, 
I think that and and those procedures are actually in place um, in 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 our elections with the electronic media that has to go back to the counties. So I feel like we know how, we know how to preserve physical evidence. That doesn't mean there won't be corrupt people, but again, we're back to the size of the conspiracy. You would need to change the outcome of an election. So I, I feel like that there's, um, the, the vulnerabilities are different in, um, I'm not exactly sure how to say this, but in orders of magnitude, if that mm. makes sense, yep. um, because um, the it's it's much easier to get into a computer and and monkey with things than it is to have to physically get your hands on ballots and destroy them or uh, do you know ballot box stuffing would be is would be a little bit harder with the um, electronic scanners because mm-hmm. then you you know you have to match up the book i mean you really everybody in the polling place would have to be in on it mm-hmm. right so i i feel like it's there it's a different kind of vulnerability but in some ways i think it's easier to protect against because we know how to do it we've been dealing with physical evidence for a long time gotcha all right so before we uh i want to toward the end i want to do a little bit of a more forward-looking uh stuff but before we get there what did what is your basic gut feel for how things are going to go down in 2018 and 2020? It sounds like that given the way our Congress works, I seriously doubt that any of this legislation that's currently before them is going to have, uh, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but any chance of having a, a significant impact on the 2018 elections. Um, uh, what about 2020? Do, do we feel that, do you feel that, that these things are likely to be uh, in place? What are your major worries for the next uh, two election cycles? Well, I think, I think it's concerning that we still have a significant number of DREs in the field, especially in states that have a large a large proportion of them for their voters. So that's my biggest concern for 2018 and 2020. However, they've been deployed in the field now for 12, 14 years. So there are, you know, there are steps that can be taken to minimize the risk that anybody will tamper with them and those steps will be taken again this year and in fact probably with even more care given the 2016 election. Um, I, I am optimistic that there will be that there will be states who will replace their equipment before 2020. That the real issue now is for states not to get the same kind of unverifiable machines. And they're still on the market and that's concerning. So there are still paperless DREs that are being sold and there are still the, they, um, one mitigation that they did the last time around was to take the DREs and put on what they called a voter-verified paper audit trail. And we, that's, we don't support that as an ideal situation because in the, some ways that it's um, deployed, you can track back. You can see how somebody voted if you know the order that they voted on the machine. And those are not particularly robust when it comes to doing the audits. They're not deployed on you know they're on thermal paper it's just difficult mm. to do an audit with them and there have been some studies now albeit older studies that show that voters really don't look at those pieces of papers when they're when they're using the touch screen and it goes right to the computer memory so it could say something that they didn't intend and they may not notice it so that's um, one of the issues so I think the real my real concern is making sure we don't that history doesn't repeat itself. But I I almost feel that we're there again, because mm-hmm. in two thousand 
we had this horrible situation and nothing happened. And then it wasn't until the 2002 election midterms that there were really bad things that happened. That finally Congress said, okay, now we have to act. So, um, I, I sort of feel like history is repeating itself a little bit. Sure. <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about, you know, the, the, the pitfalls with throwing technology at some of these things where doing everything by computer is not necessarily a better thing. How does that apply to things like, uh, online registration or online voting and, or, uh, you talked about mail-in voting too. What are, what are your thoughts on some of those things? Are, are any of those things worth pursuing? Is it, uh, I know that online voting in particular is kind of weird, um, <laughs> Because we do think about you know coercion or being able to sell your vote or whatever. I think technically it's possible, but what are some of the issues around registration and voting online? Okay, so let's be really clear about the difference in those transactions. Because when I was at Pennsylvania, we introduced, we launched online voter registration, and that that was my project, and it was uniformly embraced. But the voter registration process is not anonymous, right? Mm -hmm. You can check that it went through. You can check that your registration is correct. You can you can have an ID number. We used to give people, this is your um, confirmation number, and they could go to a website and type in their confirmation number and make sure that, that their registration got in. So that's a completely different transaction. It's not anonymous. And that's why we can do online voter registration, and we can and because registration is the first barrier to getting people to vote, making that easy and accessible is really important. Online voting is another thing entirely. Again, it's an anonymous transaction. Um, it is subject to hacking like anything else. And, and, and online voter registration is subject to hacking too, but it's not anonymous and you can check. Like you mm. can say, hey, am I on the list? I should be on the list. Whereas with voting, you 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 can't say that. You can say, I voted for X, Y, and Z. Did they get in? You, we, it, we separate the people from their votes. So um, there's, so with online, online voting is just extraordinarily vulnerable um, because you don't know the status of the computer that the voter is using. It could already have malware on it. It can be, votes can be altered in transmission. There can be phishing attacks where they um, direct you to the wrong website instead of the website where you're supposed to be mm. going with your vote. There can be denial of service attacks. Um, it just the list any any kind of attack for an, any online application can apply to online voting. So not only is it subject to interference that makes it not accurate, it's not verifiable um, because or because you don't have if it can be changed on and route, you don't really know what the voter's intent was. And then it's not um, anonymous because you actually can track back the voter through their IP address if you wanted to. So we don't do that in the U.S. So in fact, 31 states have a form of online delivery of um, voted materials for absentee voters and either by email fax or through an online portal. And in some states, those voters are asked to waive their uh, constitutional right to a secret ballot because they can't guarantee secrecy of the ballot. There's no digital analog for the secrecy envelope in an absentee ballot. Um, so uh, uh, we are just not ready. <laughs> we are not ready. Uh, the current under current technology or um, uh, current products on the market to do internet voting safely. Now, having said that, there are there is an end to end verifiable internet voting report that says how you might be able to do it, but there's no high quality commercial grade 
uh, system on the market right now, and we're several million dollars away from getting it there. And the ones that have been deployed have been successfully hacked. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's think positively. Let's say that that (laughs) all these things that we're talking about today come into being, that we we managed to get, you know, the the grand – bulk of uh of voting systems to have paper ballots does voter fraud voting go away at that point is your job done if uh what's on your wish list once once we knock this big one off uh if you could write if you could write the the constitutional amendment with your wish list on it that for our future of our voting systems what what would that be uh well um i think that you know i i do think that the um end-to-end verifiability report is is a good starting starting point for that we want to be able to we want to have want to have a trustworthy process from beginning to end and that starts with voter registration so we want to make sure that um well you know in my view uh, we verified voting doesn't get into the uh, you know the actual um process of registering people to vote but we're very concerned about voter registration databases mm-hmm. and how they're deployed but say we, if we still have a voter registration process instead of automatic registration for everyone, you know, from the beginning to just have a secure and verifiable system, starting with the voter registration process, making sure that there's um, that the way the voter registration database is handled and deployed is secure, making sure that when people show up to the polls that the data is accurate and um, trustworthy, and then... And then finally, a post-election audit of the paper of of a record that is trustworthy, that is end-to-end verifiable, to make sure that the uh, the winners are the winners and the losers are the losers. So uh, I'm not, you know, getting down into the nitty-gritty, but those those principles of being able to verify every step of the process, um, we're not there yet. And we need so there is a lot of work to do. Even if we got paper, even if we got paper records in every state tomorrow, most states don't even. Some states have no post-election audits at all. Mm-hmm. Some states have really tough recount provisions, so that's mm-hmm. very difficult to recount even um, a, all but the closest races. So we still have a lot of work to do um, in the in, in, for the foreseeable future, and we still have to be beat off <laughs> or beat down these uh, ideas of using technology in ways that may be less secure than people think because they haven't thought through all the um, uh, processes. Well, we are very glad to have you out there in the front lines uh, helping <laughs> with these things because they're it's supremely important. And I really hope that through shows like this and other other ways that we get the word out and people understand just how critical these things are. A lot of things are, are just taken for granted, I believe, and they really shouldn't be, especially the way things have been going. So thank you very much for all you guys have been doing. Uh, how do we, as citizens, what do we do next? Uh, what 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 kind of call to action can I give to the audience? How do, What can they do to promote these issues, to spread the word, and to support what you're doing? Well, I'll give you three three things. One, I think that you could call your senators or your um, or your representatives on the Paper Act and ask them to move that legislation. Number number two is I think a lot of this is going to be uh, local organizing or talk to the people that run elections where you live. Most of that is done at the county level, and some states they do it at the town. Like in, in New England, especially, they do it at the town level. Talk to them about 
what you want to see. Talk to them about having a paper record and making sure that they look at it in a meaningful way after. And of course, the third thing you can always do is donate to Verified Voting at yeah. our website, <laughs> verifiedvoting.org. Yes, Wonderful. Um, but, I, I, but I do think that this may be a local a local uh, issue that we may what well, we may see change coming from the ground up rather than from the top down. So I encourage people to figure out who runs elections where you live, and make sure they do it um, as as well as possible. Well, thank you. That's great advice. Uh, one thing I'll throw out just as a little anecdote: when I was a kid uh, in high school, uh, the girl I was dating at the time, her parents were volunteers at the local election office. So I don't think a lot of people realize this, or maybe, or maybe they do, and just just don't give it serious thought. But there's nothing to prevent you on election day from going and volunteering to work at some of these things and see how these things really work up up front. I remember doing that as a kid, helping people vote on the old, you know, lever machines with the curtains, you know, and, right. and getting a front hand view as a high school student of wow, this is this is democracy in action. This is at the grassroots level this is how this stuff happens and uh it gives you a really interesting perspective i think so that's something else i might encourage people to think about doing the next time the elections or the primaries roll around go volunteer go see how these things work i totally agree and i thank you so much for mentioning that and anybody out there that has any kind of technical expertise um i really encourage you i met a guy yesterday um who's software engineer who was the judge of elections in his precinct i'm like that's hmm. awesome and that's what we need we need more people like that to volunteer and oversee how uh and and help people vote because it's really important but i'd like to see is a lot of companies give people paid time off for serving yes. in their um polling places on election day yeah and why not have a national holiday for voting and weekend voting and yes, we can talk well, about that for all yeah <laughs> Well, thank you so, so much. It was a great conversation and a very important one. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us today. Thanks for having me. And that's going to wrap up our show this week. What a great conversation with Marion Schneider. Uh, really informative. So glad to have her on the show and uh, very much appreciate her telling us all about how we keep our elections safe and how we maintain the integrity of our vote. There's nothing more fundamental in democracy than how you vote. And if you can't trust the outcome of that vote, that causes all sorts of really deep insidious problems. So this is a absolutely crucial thing. We've all got to be paying attention to this. I really encourage you all to get involved. Um, if nothing else, send these guys some money. These guys are doing some really great work for all of our benefit. Uh, go to verifiedvoting.org and you can donate there. Uh, and of course, the usual contact your Congress critters and, and tell them how important this stuff is to you and tell them to get on it. Uh, we've got a we've got a midterm election coming up here soon. Uh, anything we can get done before then would be really good to do. And of course, we definitely have to get stuff in place by 2020. Uh, there's some uh, bills before Congress. Uh, make sure you uh, call, tell your Congress critters that you support those things and get those passed. Uh, get out there and 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 make yourself heard. It's very very important. And as always, you can find more information uh, on my website firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You can find links to the blog, to the newsletter, to the book. Uh, and you'll find access to my Twitter account there, all sorts of good stuff. Uh, check that out. Uh, you can also find links to patreon.com if you'd like to help support me in other ways on, on this crusade of mine to uh, tell as many people as possible about all these things. Tell your friends and family. Get them involved. Uh, information is the most important thing at this point. We've got to spread the word and make, get people informed, uh, and then we'll get people involved. So please help me spread the word as much as possible. Uh, and... It's just so important. The more people that know about this stuff, the better we will all be. And that's going to wrap up everything. So see you again next week. And as always, everybody, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.